to the Word for Today, featuring the Bible teaching of Pastor Chuck Smith, founder of the Calvary Chapel Movement. This in-depth one-hour radio broadcast features a verse-by-verse study through the entire Bible, as originally taught by Pastor Chuck. Our study today picks up in the book of John, chapter 8, verse 37, as we follow along with today's lesson. I'm doing the things of my Father. You're doing the things of your Father. You're trying to kill me. That's the desire of Satan. To destroy the Son of God. And so you're going about to kill me. And thus you're doing the things that you have seen with your father. And they answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus said unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that hath told you the truth, which I have heard of God. Abraham didn't do this. Abraham believed God. It was accounted to him for righteousness. Now, Paul said not all who are of Israel are Israel. Uh they again are thinking in in the terms of the physical. I'm a physical descendant of Abraham. My genealogy goes back to Abraham. We have Abraham as our father. And Jesus said, no. Uh, If you were Abraham's children, now Jesus is talking in the spiritual realm, then you'd be doing the works of Abraham. Abraham was the father of a spiritual race of those who believed in the word of God. And so, Abraham didn't do what you're doing. You do the deeds of your father. Then they said unto him, We be not born of fornication. We have one father, even God. So, uh, Jesus is, is uh, actually here pressing the issue, their father, and They are now cutting, very cutting. We are not born of fornication. Sort of a intimation concerning his birth. That secret of Mary was not a secret. When Mary and Joseph were married, the people counted the months. And thus... Jesus was accused of being conceived out of wedlock, which indeed, of course, he was. But uh, they are using it now. We were not born of fornication. It is a very cutting remark to Jesus. And they said, we have one father, even God. Now they are claiming God is their father. But Jesus said unto them, if God were your father... 
you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Now, you're wanting to kill me because your father, Satan, wants to destroy me. You're doing the works of your father because you want to kill me. If God were your father, you'd love me. And so when you see people today, it's their response and reaction to Jesus Christ is very revealing as to who their father really is. If God is your father, then you would love him. For I proceeded forth and came from God, and neither did I come of myself, but he sent me. He said, I didn't come to do my own will, but the will of him that sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Even because you cannot hear my word. There's that hardness of heart, deafness of ear. You are of your father, and now he's going to get very pointed. You are of your father, the devil. And the desires of your father, you will do. They did crucify him. They did fulfill the desires of their father, the devil, in seeking to destroy God. He was a murderer from the beginning, and he abode not in truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he's speaking of his own nature, for he is a liar and the father of it. So two accusations. He's a murderer and he's a liar. He wants to murder me. I am the truth. He wants to extinguish the truth. He's a liar and has been a liar from the beginning. Now, you will know the truth. The truth will make you free. But the lies of Satan will bring you into bondage, into the bondage of corruption and sin, powers of darkness. Because I tell you the truth, Jesus said, you do not believe me. Which of you convinces me of sin? Which, which of you can point out sin in me? Boy, I'll tell you, I wouldn't dare say that. We could get a long line of witnesses here. But Jesus lived such a life, he could, he could say, which of you convinces me of sin, can, can show sin in me? And if I say the truth, why do you not believe me? He that is of God hears God's words. Ye therefore hear them not, because you are not of God. Very strong statements, but yet very uh, probing kind of statements by which we need to look at ourselves. Do I hear his word? Do I submit? That is hearing in the sense of submitting to the word. Then I am of God. But if I'm rebelling, not listening, then I am not of God. Then answered the Jews and said unto him, did we not say well that you're a Samaritan and you have a devil? Jesus answered, I do not have a devil, but I honor my father and you dishonor me. And I seek not my own glory. There's one that seeks and judges. And verily, verily, I say unto you, if a man will keep my saying, he shall never see death. And then the Jews said unto him, now we know that you have a devil 
because Abraham is dead and the prophets. And you say, if a man keeps your saying, he will never taste of death. Now, again, they're thinking in the terms of the physical. Jesus is speaking the word in the realm of the spiritual. It's awfully hard to converse with a person that only thinks in the realms of the physical. Hard to talk to them about spiritual things. The natural man does not understand the things of the spirit, neither can he know them. They are spiritually discerned. And so we find ourselves oftentimes frustrated as we're trying to talk to people about spiritual things and they can only think in the realm of the natural. Now, when Jesus said, if a man keeps my words, he shall never see death, he's not talking about physical death. He's not saying that you're going to go on living forever in this old corrupted body. Wouldn't it be horrible <laughs> to have to live forever in this body of corruption? I could think of nothing worse than, than living forever in this body that's getting more decrepit every day, going to pieces. But you got to see it, man. No way. Free me. Paul said, we know that when this tent is dissolved, this body in which we presently live, we have a building of God not made with hands that is eternal in the heavens. So then we who are in these bodies do often groan earnestly desiring to be freed, not to be an unembodied spirit, but to be clothed upon with the body which is from heaven. And as time goes by, and as the body begins to wear out, and it can no longer fulfill the purposes and functions for which God designed it, for he designed it to be the medium by which I can express myself. But I find that my body is beginning to restrict me. I'm not as agile as I once was. I can't jump off of walls anymore. I let myself down carefully. You just, you know, you learn to live with the limitations. And you get to the place where you begin to long to be freed. Not to be unembodied, but to receive that new body which is from heaven and, and to uh, move on into the eternal aspects of the kingdom of God. So Jesus when he said, you will never die, he is talking about this second definition of death in the scriptures, which is the separation of a man's consciousness from God. The Bible says that a person who lives for pleasure is dead while they yet live. There is no consciousness of God. That's spiritual death. And when Jesus is here saying, if a man keeps my saying, he will never see death. He is saying, you'll never be consciously separated from God. Spiritual death. He's not saying you're going to live forever in this body. Don't worry. But you'll never be separated from God. And to be absent from this body is to be present then with the Lord. So they're thinking in the terms of the physical 
And the Jews said unto him, Now we know that you have a devil. Abraham is dead, the prophets. And now you say, if a man keeps your saying, he will never taste of death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, which is dead? And the prophets, who are dead? Whom do you make yourself? Oh, an important question. Whom do you make yourself? And Jesus answered, if I honor myself, my honor is nothing. It is my Father that honoreth me, of whom you say, he is your God. Who do you make yourself? Well, tell you what. My Father is the one you're calling God. You call him God. He's my Father. So who is he making himself? He's making himself the Son of God. Yet you have not known him, but I know him. And if I would say that I don't know him, I would be a liar like you. But I know him, and I keep his saying. I mean, things are pretty hot at this point. <laughs> They've accused him of being born of fornication and all. I mean, and it's, you know, there's a Samaritan, you have a devil. I mean, they're making all of these accusations. And so Jesus comes back, and he said, well, if I said I didn't know him, then I would be a liar just like you are. And then he said... Yet you have not known him, but I know him, and, and so forth. Uh, but I know him, and I keep his saying. So I do uh, always those things that please the Father. I do the things that I see of the Father, and now I keep his saying. Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. The Jews then said unto him, You're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? What did Jesus mean, Abraham rejoiced to see my day? Well, of course, there could be a couple of things. God spoke to Abraham and gave to him a promise that from his seed, all of the nations of the earth would be blessed. Abraham rightly interpreted that as meaning that he would be a progenitor of the Messiah. That's what God was promising. And so Abraham believed God, this promise of God, and it was accounted unto him for righteousness his faith in this promise of God that the Messiah will come from you. He'll be a descendant of yours. His belief in that, God counted his belief for righteousness. Belief what? That the Messiah would come from him. So Abraham believed in Jesus. We are told in the book of Hebrews that these all died in faith, not having received the promise, but seeing it afar off. They embraced it, and they claimed they were just strangers and pilgrims. So hearing the promise of God, seeing it afar off, he embraced it. But Abraham rejoiced to see my day. So in a spiritual sense, Abraham saw his day, or saw him. What do you mean Abraham has seen you? Now, in the Old Testament, when Lot was captured by the five kings who 
invaded that territory and took captives. When Abraham got his servants and they pursued after these five kings and delivered Lot, as they were returning back to the area, the priest and the king, he's called both a priest and king of peace, came out to meet Abraham. His name was Melchizedek. And Abraham gave to him a tenth, the tithe of all of the loot that he had taken in the battle against the five kings. And he offered to Abraham bread and wine, the symbols of communion. There are many who believe that Melchizedek was one of what they call the Christophanies or the appearances of Christ in the Old Testament. We do read in the book of Hebrews that Jesus is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The declaration that Jesus was a high priest would be challenged by the Jews. He is of the tribe of Judah. The tribe of Levi was appointed as the priestly tribe. And so the book of Hebrews declares he is a tribe not after the Levitical order, but he is a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And so there are those who believe and affirm, and I am one of them, that Melchizedek was an appearance of Jesus, the fact that he is called the king of peace and the king of righteousness. I mean, uh, and he appeared to Abraham Abraham paid tithes unto him. And, of course, the uh, tithes are paid by the lesser to the greater. So Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So they challenged and said, you're not yet 50 years old. I wonder if Jesus, because of the hardships in life, looked older than, you see, he was only in his early 30s at this point. But I wonder if the, you know, the, the severity of life made him look older. You're not yet 50 years old. Have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said unto them, verily, verily. Boy, when you get to this verily, verily, stop. I mean, you're going to get some important stuff here. Uh, back in verse 51, verily, verily, I send you, he that keeps my saying shall not see death. Now again, verily, verily. I say unto you, before Abraham was, I am. He didn't say I was. Before Abraham was, I was. But before Abraham was, and now he uses that eternal name of God, I am. Who are you? Who do you make yourself? Okay, you want to know? Before Abraham was, I am. The eternal. Now, their response was the response of their father, the murderer, from the beginning, because they took up stones to cast at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. The uh, idea or indication seemed to be that he just sort of became invisible, walked right on past them. Uh, but 
as we can well imagine, the, the tensions are hot. They're ready now. And it says they believed him. And he, so he said this to those that believe, but boy, now they're ready to take up stones. They can't handle his words. Before Abraham was, I am. Now, that either makes Jesus a colossal liar or the son of God. To make that claim, it's so radical. If it is not true, he is a colossal liar. And we may as well not meet next Sunday. (laughs) But if it is true, then we better pay close attention and submit ourselves to the truth. Receive the truth. And in receiving the truth, receive freedom from the bondage of sin. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Now, throughout this congregation tonight, one after another to the hundreds could stand up and give witness of how the truth has made them free. After the third service, after the first service today when we spoke on the subject, a fellow came up, pulled up his sleeve and showed me the track marts. And he said, Jesus has set me free. I can witness to what you said. I was a heroin addict and Jesus set me free. After the third service, a fellow came up. And he said, I have had 15 years of sobriety, 13 and a half years of struggle, like Ulysses bound to the mast. But a year and a half ago, I found Jesus Christ, and now I am free indeed. Yes, you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. For if the Son shall make you free, then you are free indeed. Shall we turn in our Bibles to the ninth chapter of the Gospel according to John? John tells us that Jesus did many other signs which he did not record. But he did record these signs that you might believe that he is the Messiah, the Son of the living God, and by believing have life in his name. At the end of the book, John said, I suppose if everything that could be written was written, that all of the libraries of the world could not contain the things that could be written concerning Jesus Christ. John picked out eight signs that Jesus did. The eight signs that proved that he was the Messiah, the Son of the living God. Tonight in chapter 9, we are looking at the seventh of the eight signs. And in this sign, Jesus, the only time recorded in the Gospels, healed a person of a genetic problem. Now, in the book of Acts, there were two who were healed of genetic problems. 
two men who were lame from birth who were healed. But the gospel, no doubt he did heal others, but there are none recorded in the gospels with the exception of this man who was born blind. And this, as I said, constitutes the seventh of the eight signs that John chose. The eighth, of course, was the raising of Lazarus from the dead. So we are still in Jerusalem, still during the time of the Feast of the Passover, the events that followed the Feast of the Passover. And as Jesus passed by, He saw a man which was blind from his birth. His disciples asked him, saying, Master, who did sin that this this man or his parents that he was born blind? They were curious. There was a common feeling and belief that Tragedy only came as the result of sin. That a person who is going through a physical, emotional hardship is doing so because of sin. And they felt there was a very direct cause and effect relationship with sin. So when they saw a man who was born blind, The question is, is God punishing his parents for some sin that they committed? As the scriptures said, uh, that the sins of the fathers will be visited upon the children uh, to the third and the fourth generation of those who continue in their sins. Uh, Is God punishing them for their sin through their child being born blind? Or... Was he guilty of a prenatal sin? Or did they believe in the preexistence of the human soul? And thus, uh, who did sin? This man was born blind. They did believe that it was possible to sin within the womb. And so the question, whose fault is this? It's interesting how so often when we see human tragedy and human suffering, we're always wanting to find the blame, the cause. Whose fault is this? But it's interesting that Jesus discarded the question as to whose fault it was. He answered it by declaring neither him or his parents. They are not responsible for his being born blind. This is just one of those things that God has allowed in order that he might accomplish his purposes. So Jesus said, Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents, but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. God, at times, allows us to experience difficulty, hardship, even suffering, that he might accomplish his works in our lives. Paul the Apostle was given a thorn in the flesh, a minister of Satan, 
lest he be exalted above measure because of the abundance of revelations that have been given to him. God had allowed this thorn in the flesh because God was wishing to do a special work in Paul which required special revelation. Paul the Apostle speaks of the hardships, the sufferings that he endured. But he said, yet we know that the present suffering is not worthy to be compared with the glory that's going to be revealed. Jesus himself suffered. He suffered the agony of the cross, the shame of the cross. But again, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. So the purposes of God being worked out in our lives often through hardship or through suffering, God is working his purposes. And so in this man's life, that the works of God should be made manifest in him. God's work manifested. And then Jesus declared, I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day. The night comes when no man can work. So Jesus is declaring that this man's condition existed, that God might manifest his works. And then Jesus declared, I must work the works of him that sent me. Now, what was then the work of God that was manifested in this man? It was the healing of his blindness. Now, oftentimes there is not a direct cause and effect as far as sin and pain go. There is an indirect many times. Good people suffer sicknesses. Good people die of illnesses and of cancer and of other things. It doesn't mean that it is God punishing them because of some sin in their lives. But because of sin in the world, with sin entered death and those things that bring death. So in a overall sense, the suffering of the world is the result of sin. Not necessarily direct cause and relationship, but many times indirect. If there had been no sin, there would be no suffering. There would be no death. There would be no pain. It would be a perfect world if it were not for sin. So all of these things indirectly result from the fact that sin is in the world. And because we are living in this world, God does not give to us a divine immunity against sickness against viruses, against suffering, against aging. It's just not there. But God is with us and wonderful at times 
God will manifest his desire to counteract the effects of sin in the world. And so each of us have experienced the touch of God upon our lives in the removing of the blight of sin. God is in the business of restoration. God is in the business of manifesting his power against the consequences of sin in a person's life. That is, again, sin in a general sense in the world. So I must work the works of him that sent me while it is day, Jesus said. And the work of God who sent him was the healing of this man's blind eyes. Jesus refers to the night that is coming when no man can work. The day when the opportunity of manifesting God's power will be over. As long, he said, as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Now, when he had thus spoken, he spat on the ground and he made clay of the spittle and he anointed the eyes of the blind man with the clay. Why did Jesus use this method of healing the man? There were other blind people who Jesus healed and some of them he healed with just the word. Others he touched their eyes and they could see. Jesus used an unusual method of making a bit of clay, spitting on the dirt and stirring it up, making some clay, and putting it in the fellow's eyes, and then the, commanding him to go down to the pool of Siloam and to wash it out of his eyes. Now, this happened on the Sabbath day. And it was specifically forbidden in their tradition and in their interpretation of the law to make clay on the Sabbath day. So Jesus is deliberately violating the tradition of their law. Now, back in chapter 5, when Jesus came to the pool of Bethesda, and saw the man who was lying there, who was lame, and he asked him if he would like to be healed. And he said, well, Lord, I don't have anybody to help me. Or, sir, I don't have anybody to help me. When the water's troubled, someone always is there before me. Jesus said, take up your cot and go home. And the man was walking home carrying his cot and the Pharisees caught him and said, what are you doing violating the Sabbath day, carrying your cot? And he said, the man who healed me told me to take my cot and go home. They said, who was it? And, and he said, well, I really don't know. Later on, when he found out it was Jesus, he went to the Pharisees and told them it was Jesus. This began the conspiracy to put Jesus to death. 
because he had violated their traditions and their traditional observance of the Sabbath day. And this is what caused the initial breach between Jesus and the Pharisees in Jerusalem. Now here he is again, much later, back in Jerusalem. It is the Sabbath day, and he is violating their Sabbath day on at least two counts. Number one, it was wrong in their estimation to heal on the Sabbath day. Oh, they had a lot of interesting interpretations of, of the what the constituted, say, violating the Sabbath. The Sabbath day you were not to bear a burden. They said, if your sandals were held together with nails, you couldn't wear them on the Sabbath day because the extra weight of the nails would constitute bearing a burden. I mean, they had a lot of little interpretations like this. And so here is Jesus healing on the Sabbath day. They said you can take whatever measures are necessary to save a life, but nothing towards curing, nothing towards healing. So you couldn't pour cold water on a sprained ankle. That would be helping it to heal. You had to wait until the Sabbath day was over. So the making of clay, violating the Sabbath, the healing of the man's blind eyes. It was the Sabbath day, and this was the, the flashpoint with the Pharisees. This is the thing that had so angered them with Jesus. And the fact that he would use this method, he, it wasn't necessary. We know that it wasn't necessary to use this method. And yet Jesus did. In this, there is another interesting concept. And we know that faith has a important part of our relationship with God and receiving from God. Jesus said, if you can believe, all things are possible to him that believes. And we do know that so often our faith is in a passive state. Oh, yes, I believe God can do it. That's rather passive. And you can go your whole life believing that God can do something, but never see it done. There's a vast difference between saying, I believe that God can do it, and I believe that God will do it. And there is even a difference between saying, I believe that God will do it, and I believe that God will do it now. And when you get to, I believe that God will do it now, you now have an active faith. But many times it takes something to trigger that faith into action. Believing now. So that I believe that this is one of the reasons why the Lord commanded that they should lay hands on the sick and they shall recover. That your faith is set to be triggered when the hands are laid upon me and I'm anointed with oil, I know that God will heal me 
then. Like the woman who said that if I can just but touch the hem of his garment, I know that I'll be healed. And there was that place of contact where the faith was released for the healing now. The moment she grabbed the hem of his garment, the virtue went forth from Christ and she was healed according to her testimony unto Jesus. So with Paul, they took the sweatbands when he was in Ephesus and laid them on the sick and they were healed. With Peter, as his shadow would pass on the people, fall on people, they were healed. It's because they had in their minds that point of contact where their faith would be activated. I know that if Peter will just walk by and his shadow falls on me, the moment his shadow falls on me, I know God's going to heal me. And, and thus they would line the people in the streets when Peter, when Peter was walking down the street so that his shadow might fall on them, that they might be healed. Nothing spiritual about Peter's shadow, nothing magical. It was just something that a person's faith was released at that point. And it became active. It could be that with the putting of the clay in the man's eyes, it was an opportunity to give a place of activating the faith. Go wash in the pool of Siloam. And, and the man had that feeling, if, if I wash, I'm going to be able to see. And it gave him that opportunity for uh, releasing faith. But I personally feel that Jesus is just putting mud in the Pharisees' eyes, so to speak. I mean, he doesn't back away from confrontation. And so Jesus told the man, go wash in the pool of Siloam, and John tells us which by interpretation is sent. Back in the time of King Hezekiah, when Shennacherib was coming with the Assyrian army to invade uh, Judah and to capture Jerusalem, knowing that the armies were on the way, uh, the main water supply was from the Virgin Spring, or called the Spring of Gihon, which is down in the Kidron Valley, but was outside of the city walls, and thus it was very easy for the enemy to cut off their water supply. And so Hezekiah ordered these men to start digging a tunnel through solid rock that would come in under the city walls into the city so that they would have this fresh water supply within the city. So a group of men began digging through the rock at the pool, uh, what became the pool of Siloam, and others from the spring of Gihon, they started digging towards each other. They didn't go in straight lines, but sort of back and forth so that 366 feet would be straight through. It was 563 feet is what the tunnel is if you walk through it. And uh, they finally met uh, somewhere there in the middle. Uh, they could hear each other talking. They realized they were only about nine feet apart. They began to dig towards each other until their picks met each other and the water began to flow from the spring of Gihon to the pool of Siloam. So they called it the pool of scent 
because the water was sent through the tunnel uh, from the spring of Gihon into the pool. And so that's where it got, it, it got its name. Siloam means sent. And the water is sent through this tunnel that was dug by uh, the decree of Hezekiah. So the man went his way, washed. And when he washed, he came seeing. He could see. Born blind, now he can see. The neighbors, therefore, and they which had seen him that was blind, said, Is not this he that sat and begged? Isn't this the blind man who for all of these years was sitting there begging? And some said, This is he. Others said, It sure looks like him. But he said, hey, I'm me. (laughs) I am the one. And therefore they said unto him, how is it that you can see? How were your eyes open? And he answered and said, a man that is called Jesus. And notice now the progression of the revelation. He starts out, a man who is called Jesus made clay. And he anointed my eyes and said unto me, Go to the pool of Siloam and wash. And I went and washed, and I received sight. Then they said unto him, Where is he? And he said, I don't know. And they brought him to the Pharisees, the one that before was blind. And it was the Sabbath day when Jesus made the clay and opened his eyes. So you see, here's the sticking point. This was the Sabbath day, a direct violation of their interpretation of the Sabbath law. You're not to make clay specifically on the Sabbath day. Then again, the Pharisees also asked him and said how he had received his sight. And he said unto them, he put clay upon my eyes and I washed and I see. Therefore, said some of the Pharisees, this man is not of God because he doesn't keep the Sabbath day. Others said, how can a man that is a sinner do such miracles? And there was a division among them, and you can see. Here are the old sticklers. Can't be of God. He did this on the Sabbath day. Others will say, but wait a minute. How can a man do these miracles? You remember when Nicodemus, one of the Pharisees, came to Jesus, he said, we know that you are God because no man can do the things that you do except God were with him. So Nicodemus and his friends were saying, wait a minute. You know, how can he do these miracles without the power of God, the division among them? So they said unto the blind man again, what do you say of him? And he, that he hath opened your eyes. And he said, he is a prophet. Now notice, a man named Jesus, and now he's he's getting closer. Well, he is a prophet. Uh, It's beginning to uh, sink in what's happened. Just a man could not have opened my eyes. He is a prophet. But the Jews did not believe concerning him that he had been blind and received his sight until they called his parents 
And they asked them, saying, is, your, is this your son whom you say was born blind? You say that that was the case. How is it that he can now see? It is so difficult to argue against this kind of evidence. I mean, what can you say? The guy says, hey, I don't know, but this I do know. I was once blind and now I can see. How can you argue against that evidence? When Peter and John were going into the temple and the lame man who was a beggar was seeking alms from them, and Peter said, I don't have any silver or gold, but what I do have, I'll be glad to give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise to your feet and walk. And he took the man by the right hand, lifted him to his feet, and immediately the man was healed. He began to walk. He began to run through the temple, walking, leaping, praising God. And, and the people all said, isn't that the man who has been begging all these years? Sure looked like him. How is it that he can walk? Let's find out. And they followed him out to Solomon's porch where Peter was still standing. And the man grabbed hold of Peter and John, began to hug them and uh, probably kiss them and all. And thus they began to relate the miracle to Peter. And Peter then preached a sermon. He was arrested along with the lame man and John. They were brought to trial. And the, the question was, how did you do it? And Peter said, if we're examined this day, by what means this lame man is made whole? Be it known unto you that it's by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth that this man is standing here whole. And, and Peter went on to preach to them that, you know, there is no other name given among them whereby we must be saved. And it said, and seeing the lame man standing there whole, they could say nothing against it. You see, that's the kind of evidence. Blind people seeing, lame people walking. How can you argue against that kind of evidence? The greatest proof of Christianity, the greatest evidence for Christianity is you who were once blind but now see. You who were once lame who are now walking in the wholeness and the fullness of Jesus Christ. You whose lives have been transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit, you make the strongest evidence and the strongest case for the validity of Christianity. Lame men standing whole, blind people saying, messed up lies, restored. That kind of evidence... <laughs> All of the argumentation of the world cannot dispute it. So they didn't believe that he was blind. Some kind of a ruse. So they brought his parents. Is this your son that you say was born blind? And how is it that he can now see? His parents answered them and said, we know that this is our son. We know that he was born blind. Who's opened his eyes? We don't know. 
He's of age. Ask him. They're passing the buck. They were afraid of the Jews because the Jews had already determined that if anybody would acknowledge that Jesus was the Messiah, they would be excommunicated. They would not be allowed to go into the temple or they would not be allowed to go into the synagogue. They would be excommunicated from the religious life of the community. This goes back to the book of Ezra, chapter 10, verse 8, where Ezra called a convocation of the people to deal with the problem. We'll return with more of our in-depth study, the Gospel of John, in our next broadcast, as Pastor Chuck focuses his attention on Jesus and the blind man. And we do hope you'll make plans to join us. But right now, I'd like to remind you that if you'd like to order a copy of today's message, simply order John 8-9 through when visiting the wordfortoday.org. And while you're there, we encourage you to browse the many additional biblical resources by Pastor Chuck. You can also subscribe to the Word for Today podcast or sign up for our email subscription. Once again, all this can be found at thewordfortoday.org. If you'd like to call, our toll-free number is 1-800-272-WORD. And our office hours are Monday through Friday, 8 a.m. to 5 p.m. Pacific Time. Again, that's 1-800-272-9673. If you prefer to write, our mailing address is The Word for Today, P.O. Box 8000, Costa Mesa, California, 92628. And now, on behalf of the Word for Today, we'd like to thank all of you who share in supporting this ministry with your prayers and financial support. And be sure and join us again next time as Pastor Chuck continues his verse-by-verse study through the Bible. That's right here on the next edition of the Word for Today. And now, once again, here's Pastor Chuck. Father, thank you for that wonderful freedom that we have in and through Jesus Christ. And Lord, it is our desire to know you, to love you, to serve you. We desire to do always those things that please you. Take us by the hand. Lead us in your path. Let us walk in your light that we would not stumble but have the light of life through Jesus Christ. In his name we ask these things, Father, and for his glory. Amen. This program has been sponsored by Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa, California. Through the course of the years, you, our radio listeners, have provided us with valuable feedback as to what has impacted you the most are what has moved you spiritually in your walk with God. So it's with great pleasure that The Word for Today is pleased to offer you a collection of all-time favorites entitled Pastor Chuck Smith's Most Requested Bible Studies. These messages were selected from thousands of studies that were recorded live at Calvary Chapel of Costa Mesa over the past 40 years. They represent the very best Bible studies by Pastor Chuck Smith. Every message is dynamic and filled with rich insights as Pastor Chuck expounds upon relevant issues on a variety of topics related to the Christian faith. This series will strengthen and inspire you to diligently study the Word of God and apply it to your life. 
You can order a copy of Pastor Chuck's most requested Bible studies available on MP3 by calling the Word for Today at 1-800-272-9673 or visit us online at thewordfortoday.org.